before I start this week's podcast, just a thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who provided the photograph for the front cover of the podcast. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been another busy week of financial crime this week. More on sanctions, a little bit on money laundering, and of course some regulatory enforcement which has happened this week. Let's start with sanctions in the United Kingdom. As we see over previous weeks, we've seen that it gets quieter and quieter on the sanctions front. This week, the Treasury Select Committee of the United Kingdom Parliament, as part of its investigation into sanctions effectiveness, heard evidence from the Director and Deputy Director of the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI. Giles Thompson, the Director, and Christopher Watts, the Deputy Director, gave evidence on Wednesday this week. The recording of the session is available, but the minutes or the transcript not available yet. In terms of what was said, there were a few interesting tidbits. First, and of concern, is the staffing level at the office. Uh, as unprecedented sanctions were imposed on Russia, it had only 70 staff, with only six or seven of those staff ever available to advise on queries from those who had them. This is a worry. One only needs to have a quick scan of Her Majesty's government sanctions website to see the scale of the task facing anybody who might be affected by the sanctions regime. On a more positive note, the staff numbers are due to reach 100 by April 2023 as the recruitment drive continues through autumn and winter. Perhaps of more significance, it was said that Offsea plans to establish a whistleblower hotline, which, it is hoped, will reduce Offsea's reliance on self-reporting. It's worth remembering that a few weeks ago on the Financial Crime Weekly in Issue 7, we looked at the Financial Conduct Authority's position on the issue of whistleblowing, where it already had established procedures. If you'll recall, they provided information on how whistleblowing could be undertaken. So, where an individual has concerns about their current or former employer, where on the financial services or other registers, then they may speak confidentially with the Financial Conduct Authority's whistleblowing team. Alternatively, where it's an authorised firm self-reporting, where anonymity is not an issue, then SUP 15 should be used, which is the, the form. Where a firm or professional has information about another firm where suspected or actual sanctions evasion has occurred, then the misconduct form should be used. In terms of the information which could be provided, it's not just evasion, actual or suspected, but any weaknesses in sanction systems and controls, together with information on the methods believed to be in use by individuals or firms to breach the sanctions regime. The report will be investigated and may result in action being taken by the regulator or other agencies. However, when no sanctions breach is found, the information may nevertheless assist the regulator in generating a risk profile in relation either to the firm or individual concerns concerned or the sectors in which they operate. Now, while we're on the subject of the Treasury Select Committee of Parliament, a bit of kind of tangential news, I suppose, uh, that was announced on Thursday this week that a new subcommittee of 
the Treasury Select Committee is to be established with the specific task of the scrutiny of regulatory proposals for financial services. This is thought to be necessary following the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union. In further sanctions news, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO, has updated its guidance on the Russia Sanctions EU Exit Regulations 2019 in relation to the prohibition on insurance and reinsurance following sanctions imposition. Sanctions were imposed on the insurance sector blocking business with the Russian Federation and entities involved in aviation and space technology. The effect of this week's announcement is to permit a license to be granted allowing for the provision of insurance or reinsurance where the provision of cover is necessary to prevent degradation or to allow the safe storage of related technology which is under storage in the United Kingdom. And finally on sanctions in the UK this week the Financial Conduct Authority has announced the development and implementation of a sanction screening tool to support the monitoring and effectiveness of a firm's controls in identifying organisations or individuals subject to sanctions. The Financial Conduct Authority will provide its staff with a dashboard for all financial companies which it regulates and for each sector it covers. It will help, it is thought, to manage the risks posed by particular entities. Now, if we turn away from the United Kingdom and look beyond the UK, you'll recall that one of the earliest international actions taken following the Russian invasion of Ukraine was the banning of seven Russian banks, with Sberbank added later, from use of the SWIFT international payment system. The ban was mooted in the earliest days of the threatened invasion of Ukraine way back in December 2021, and there was a high level of confidence that it would not happen. Well, it did, and now Russia is once more touting uh, an alternative to SWIFT, with the head of Spurbank, Hermann Greff, saying that moves are carrying on apace. One alternative is the system which Russia established in 2014, namely SPFS, which is a ruble-based uh, system. Alternatively, and which again has been touted for some time, but which was flagged again this week, Russia could adopt a blockchain-based system for payments. I suppose that's one of those watch-this-space kind of things. Now, a little bit on legacy sanctions. The Council of the European Union this week extended its sanctions, which were imposed on Crimea and the city of Sevastopol, which were introduced in 2014. The period of extension is for a further year, and they will now expire on the 23rd of June 2023. Frankly, I look forward to reporting on their renewal for a further year, this time next year. Now, there's one final story worth noting this week, and it comes from the publication of the European Systemic Risk Board's annual report for 2021. Of particular interest is the risk of systemic cyber incidents, historically coordinated by criminal gangs for ransom. That's the classic one, I suppose. But more recently, targeted at service supply chains. It's been widely reported that following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia would increase the scale of its cyber attacks on those who have supported Ukraine in its resistance of the invasion. However, the annual report notes that the number of cyber attacks which have been reported to the European Central Bank has not increased since the invasion started. 
However, and again of interest, it may be that some cyber attacks were initiated several months ago but only activated recently. Therefore, there remains a degree of uncertainty over the likely course which cyber attacks from the Russian Federation will take over coming months, since some cyber attacks could be sleeping and not activated for some months and most probably at a strategically important moment for those who mean to create havoc. In the meantime, all firms can really do is continue to show vigilance and maintain regular checks of their systems. That's it for sanctions. Leave that to one side now and move on to money laundering. Another decent range of money laundering stories this week. We'll start with news from the European Union where the Court of Justice of the European Union has confirmed the decision of the European Central Bank to withdraw authorization from the Anglo-Austrian Bank, AAB, for persistent failings in its anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism obligations. Now, you'll have to have a longish memory to recall the origins of the issues with AAB Bank, or AAB. As far back as 2010, the Austrian Financial Market Supervisory Authority had sanctioned AAB for failings in its anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism obligations. In 2019, following persistent failings, the Austrian Financial Services Regulator submitted a draft decision to withdraw authorization to the European Central Bank. The ECB therefore withdrew authorization as a credit institution from AAB. AAB's persistent AML and CFT failings meant that the institution was not able to demonstrate sound management of the risks to which it was exposed. Now, AAB applied to annul that decision, but that application was rejected by the Ninth Chamber of the General Court. In its judgment, the court found the ECB had made no error of assessment in withdrawing authorization and that it had not failed to determine, examine and assess carefully and impartially all the material elements relevant for the withdrawal of the authorization. Further, it held that AAB Bank had failed to implement the governance arrangements required by the competent authorities in accordance with the National Provisions Transposing Directive 2013 forward slash 36. Now, in further news, which is not entirely unrelated to the removal of authorization from AAB, the ECB has this week set out the details of its supervisory role in relation to anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism in a presentation given by Elizabeth McCall, who is a member of the supervisory board of the ECB. While the role of the ECB is, of course, principally prudential, it is envisaged that going forwards there will be an enhanced role for prudential supervisors in anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. McFall cited the fifth anti-money laundering directive, which clarified the legal basis for the exchange of information between prudential and AML and CFT supervisors, as well as the fifth capital requirements directive, which introduced new AML and CFT related requirements for prudential supervisors regarding authorization and withdrawal procedures and supervisor review and evaluation processes. If you get a chance to check out Elizabeth McCall's presentation, it's very useful and quite informative. You can get it on the ECB website. In the UK this week, new money laundering regulations have been laid before Parliament. 
the Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Amendment No. 2 Regulations 2022, which are in draft form, will make some broad amendments to existing provisions. These include the redefinition of a business relationship to include all forms of business relationship, not necessarily limited merely to companies and other legal persons. There is also the expansion of information sharing standards for bank transfers to transfers involving crypto assets. Now, this is specifically to comply with FATF standards following the mutual evaluation review and the follow-up, which was published recently. The draft regulation also makes amendments to the definition of art market participants to exempt those artists who sell their own works of art over the €10,000 threshold. This will include those circumstances where the artist sells their work individually or through a corporation or partnership in which they're either a shareholder or a partner. Finally, the draft regulation also broadens the scope of information and intelligence sharing by broadening the list of relevant authorities for the purposes of the regulations. Now, This will now include the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and Companies House, which is a full circle. This is a closing of the circle and an amplifying of the role of Companies House, which has been trailed variously in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly. It will also allow the Financial Conduct Authority to give a broader disclosure of confidential information which it receives from a wider relevant audience. Finally this week on money laundering, it was reported that a Danish court has sentenced a Lithuanian woman to eight years imprisonment for laundering some €4 billion Euros between 2008 and 2016. Lisette Jurgensen, who is the special prosecutor, said the case involved the largest amount of money which had ever been brought for a money laundering prosecution before a Danish court. Now, frankly, as a prosecution of a non-financial services provider, if this wasn't the largest amount, then their money laundering problem is probably much bigger than they might have thought. Now, on to a little bit about fraud. There's been quite a lot recently about scams in the media, both the mainstream and the financial media, and how strategies are being developed at political and regulatory levels to ensure uh, that they are identified, taken down, and the perpetrators, where possible, prosecuted. Well, on Thursday, the Financial Conduct Authority announced that it was tackling scams more quickly as part of its updated strategy for 2022. The data is used to scan approximately 100,000 websites created every day to identify which present a scam threat. Thus, in 2022-23, the FCA will invest heavily in data use, specialist recruitment, use advanced analytics and new data sources in order to identify adverts which are inappropriate and pose a fraud threat. This is part of the Financial Conduct Authority's three-year strategy, part of which is to reduce and prevent serious harm. Now, this week there's been quite a bit of activity on regulatory enforcement. The FCA has been a bit active this week, and it's flagged a possible re-attempt at a prosecution. So, it's been busy handing out fines, the Financial Conduct Authority, in two separate cases. So let's take a look at those fines first, and then we'll have a look at this uh, a second attempted prosecution that the Financial Conduct Authority is said it's going to have a go at. So... The first fine relates to an insurance broker, JLT Speciality Limited. 
This corporation was part of a larger group and placed business in London in the London reinsurance market for a sister company within the same group. Now that company was JLT Re Columbia. Now the business for them was introduced by a third party in Panama. Alarm bells. Between 21st November 2013 and 6th June 2017, JLT Speciality Limited paid £12.3 million in commission to JLT Columbia Wholesale Limited, which was the parent company of JLT Re Columbia, which in turn paid $10.8 million to the Panamanian introducer. This introducer then paid over $3 million to government officials in a state-owned insurer in order to help retain and secure their business for JLT Speciality Limited and JLT Re Columbia. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Financial Conduct Authority found that JLT Speciality Limited failed to manage their business and risks responsibly and effectively. The fine imposed amounts to £7.8 million. Now, while on the subject of Panama, because this did involve a Panamanian link, it's worth reflecting on the conclusions of the Financial Action Task Force following its recent three-day plenary in Berlin. You may remember we mentioned this on the Financial Crime Weekly uh, a week or so ago. The plenary happened in Berlin 14th to the 17th of June. Now, in leaving Panama on the list of countries with strategic deficiencies and therefore under increased monitoring, it noted the Financial Action Task Force again expresses significant concern that Panama failed to complete its action plan, which fully expired in January 2021. The Financial Action Task Force strongly urges Panama to swiftly complete its action plan by October 2022 or the Financial Action Task Force will consider calling on its members and urging all jurisdictions to apply enhanced due diligence to business relations and transactions with Panama. So it's not as though the risks of dealing with Panama and Panamanian entities were unknown interesting the wheel coming full circle the second fine this week issued by the financial conduct authority relates to the ghana international bank which provided correspondent banking services to overseas banks this allowed the overseas banks to provide products and services they would not otherwise be able to do including making payments in different currencies and across borders when undertaking such work, the Financial Conduct Authority requires banks to undertake additional checks on correspondent banking customers to reduce the higher risk of money laundering and terrorist financing frequently associated with such correspondent banking. While the Financial Conduct Authority stated that there was no evidence that any money laundering had taken place, the systems in place to protect against abuse of the system by money laundering and other financial crimes were, in this case, inadequate. Specifically, first, Ghana International Bank did not adequately perform the additional checks required when it established relationships with the overseas bank. Secondly, it failed to demonstrate it had assessed those banks' anti-money laundering controls. Thirdly, it failed to undertake annual reviews of the information it held on the banks with which it had relationships, fourthly, 
failed to provide staff with adequate training as to how transactions could be scrutinized properly, and fifthly, it did not establish appropriate policies and procedures for staff. Now, Ghana International Bank cooperated with the Financial Conduct Authority and because of that, and its agreement to settle the claim as early as possible, a fine of £8.3 million was actually reduced to £5.8 million. And finally, on this little bit of regulatory enforcement by the Financial Conduct Authority, you may recall that for offences which were allegedly committed between the 2nd of May 2016 and the 10th of June 2016, Stuart Bayes and Jonathan Swan were charged with insider dealing, contrary to section 52 subsection 1 of the Criminal Justice Act 1993, and that Bayes was additionally charged with improperly disclosing inside information or encouraging another, whilst being an insider, to engage in dealing contrary to section 52 subsection 2 of the 1993 Act. The scheme is believed to have generated 138 £1,700 in profit for the pair. Following trial at Southwark Crown Court, it was decided on the 25th of May this year that the jury should be discharged as they were unable to reach a verdict following the eight-week trial. Well, this week, the Financial Conduct Authority has announced that it will seek a retrial in the matter and that the court has set a date for the 11th of September 2023. And finally this week, just a few bits and pieces on bribery. Now, this is a story that we trailed a couple of weeks ago in the Financial Crime Weekly, but on Tuesday this week, the Serious Fraud Office announced that Glencore Energy UK Limited had been convicted on all charges of bribery. Now, you'll remember there were five substantive charges of active bribery under Section 1, and two charges of failure by a corporation to prevent bribery under Section 7, all of the Bribery Act 2010. At Southern Crown Court, the company admitted all counts where it was alleged that bribes had been paid by it or its agents to secure preferential access to oil, thereby generating illicit profits. The company will be sentenced on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2022. In other news, a Swiss appeals court this week has found that Jerome Valka, who was the FIFA Secretary General from 2007 to 2015, forged documents and received bribes in relation to his work on media rights at the sport's international governing body. Valka was originally cleared in 2020, but Swiss authorities appealed that decision. He's received a suspended sentence of 11 months imprisonment and a fine of 20,000 Swiss francs, about $20,000, just over $20,000, which was also suspended. Valk was banned by FIFA's Ethics Committee for, from all football-related activity until 2032, by which time I think he'll be in his early 70s. And finally this week, and it's a proper and finally, the Greek authorities have filed a bribery action against the Swiss multinational pharmaceutical company Novartis. The allegation is that Novartis paid bribes to former Greek government officials and healthcare providers to increase Novartis sales in Greece. In June 2020, a Novartis subsidiary in Greece agreed to pay 345 million US dollars in a settlement with the US Department of Justice for unlawful payments made to induce use of their products at state-controlled hospitals and clinics in Greece. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. 
Subscribe if you want to wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again next week.